Well, I believe we'll be in the book of Titus tonight. I'm doing a series on Sunday nights entitled Pastor and Church. After two weeks of introducing this topic, we are now ready to begin to dig a little bit deeper into this thought. And my hope is that it will help us to understand the relationship between a pastor and a church. What are our roles and responsibilities? Now, it's interesting, as I set out to study this topic, how many varying opinions are out there. And it really can be very difficult to wrap your arms around it all when you begin to study this. And I realize that most of you sitting out there tonight maybe could care less about some of the points I have to make. It's not going to matter a great deal to you. You're content. Church is functioning. You're assuming things are structured well, and you're just happy as can be. I know that because when I sat out there, that's how I felt. I didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes. It didn't really bother me. I just knew when I showed up it was good, and I was happy with that, and I just assumed pastors, deacons, church, everything was functioning the way it should. And so I understand that some of this may not be as appealing to others tonight, but um, after I became pastor, I became very concerned. Yeah, when you realize you're going to give an account to Almighty God, all of a sudden you get a different perspective. And I became very concerned to know, are we structured biblically as it relates to the offices found in the church? I believe most of us have at least some understanding of the office of a pastor and a deacon. That's, if you grew up in this kind of church, that's what you're most familiar with. And I, I understand those to some degree when I was on the other side of the fence looking over. But what's with the other terms that we find in the Bible? You know, what's up with bishop, elder? How does all that fit into church structure? There's some other terms that we find. You know, the church is such an amazing institution. First of all, the church was purchased by the blood of Christ. Christ established the church. The church is built upon Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And it was Christ who decided to gift the church with offices of the church. Seeing how our church, which we call by the name of Liberty Baptist Tabernacle, was purchased by Christ, it therefore belongs to Christ. Amen. Amen. And if we, know, if we want to know how to be structured, then we ought to go to the one who instituted the church and see what he says on the matter, not what is our opinion and what is some church's doctrinal position on it. What does God's word say about how a local church should be structured? And I have to add this, and I know some maybe get tired of hearing this kind of thing, but I have to add this in, in the day in which we live. You have to go to the King James Bible as English-speaking people to get God's mind on the matter. You say, well, why is that? Because by Bibles going to gender neutral today, they are changing the qualification of what God has outlined for a pastor. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, in our King James Bible states, 
This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Well, you read that in the new revised standard version. Just let that sink in and of itself. It had to be revised. Now it's a new revised. Anyway, this saying is sure. Whoever aspires to the office of a bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once. Do you see the difference? Now, it is true that the King James Bible was written in the masculine, being translated in a time of Old English. And I would say even so, I don't know about you, but I grew up, where I grew up, you learned to write in the masculine. That was the standard way of writing. You could write in the feminine and all that. But primarily you wrote in the masculine. It's only recently that there's been this dramatic move away from masculine and feminine writing to gender neutral. With the King James Bible being written in the masculine, there are some gender neutral terms that are translated as man or in the masculine gender, I should put it that way. For example, 1 John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now, that word for sons means all people. But being translated at a time when we wrote in the masculine, it was translated as sons. It does not mean that women can't receive Christ. Amen. And so all people can be saved. It's just the way that it was translated at the time. So how do we know 1 Timothy 3 is referring only to a man occupying the office of a bishop and not actually applying to both men and women? Because the Bible says he must be the husband of one wife. For 6,000 years, this has been easily understood. That a husband was a man. That a wife was a woman. It's only been recently that this has become an issue. As far as I know, it became an issue in my lifetime. Gender identity has spiraled completely out of control. And away from the Bible. I just read some lunatic's quote about how Gender identity is dependent upon what a person decides. And we know that they're saying this, but the way that the quote was formed was just to say, it doesn't matter how you were born at all. That has nothing to do with your gender. There's no way we can know your gender by how you were born. Well, that's interesting. Um, I could have swore that it was obvious, but we have moved away from all common sense. And, And again, I have to kind of preface suffix. I have to kind of add this to these statements that I make that, look, I'm not against those that are struggling. I understand that there's been a lot of indoctrination for about a generation now. Um, I just read where they're, they're indoctrinating preschoolers now on these decisions that they need to make. And, and listen, I understand there's some people that are genuinely struggling with that. I'm not making fun. I want you to know that. My heart breaks for people that are caught up in, in that kind of confusion, and they just don't know what to do. Uh, we have the answer, by the way, but um, anyway... Now it's reached the Bible. We're just going to take man out of the Bible. In fact, some Bibles now have God gender neutral. The NRSV has removed gender qualification for a bishop. Not only that, but they've removed the masculine pronouns, as you kind of heard there. But changing the husband of one wife to simply stating married only once, um, they do the same thing for the deacons too. Someone may be thinking, Pastor, are you actually suggesting that all these women who are pastoring churches are wrong? Well, on the authority of God's Word, I have to say, yes. It's exactly what I'm saying. In fact, I would take it a step further and say that they are living in open rebellion to God's structure. 
It's not that women are incapable. How many times have I said, if I could find a way to get Karen Williams up here to pastor me, I would. <laughs> but I can't find a way biblically. Yeah. Now, I go to her, and we, I get counsel, and we talk. And I go to a lot of women in this church, and I receive counsel and wisdom. But God has structured the church in a very definite way. And how we follow God's Word says a lot about our church, does it not? It's not that women can't understand spiritual truths. It's not that women can't be used by God. But cultural norms do not change the Word of God. And we must operate within God's structure. Women can be greatly used by God, but it has to be within His boundaries. Amen. As I've said, I've gone to several women in our church over the last five years. I've asked for their advice, and I've gotten a lot of good advice gotten their insights and their opinions. We have some very gifted and godly women in our church, and they have been a great help to me. But it does not mean that they are authorized by God to pastor a church. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time here, but almost always, without fail, people will bring up Deborah. What about Deborah? She's the champion of all women, I guess. And one thing you need to know about Deborah here real quick, I preached this about five years ago, but uh, Deborah judged but was not a judge there's very important distinction there she knew to go to Barak to be the deliverer to be the judge and you'll find in Hebrews 11 that Barak is mentioned and not Deborah so don't go to Deborah and say well that's my justification God uses women to lead no 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 she went to Barak she had enough sense to know the word of God so don't pull that one Um, don't compare apples and oranges And while we're here, let me go ahead and nail this one down. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, Let the the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Doesn't that make you happy, women? Of course not. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now that's God's word, not mine. This means women are not permitted by God to preach or teach in a setting where adult men are being instructed. We're talking about the structure of the church now. Therefore, women are not to be Sunday school teachers who teach grown men. Women are not permitted to preach from this pulpit to other men. There's nothing wrong with women teaching. We've got women teaching Sunday school classes every week. When I was here the first time, we had a ladies' Sunday school class, and Mrs. Brock taught that class. Nothing wrong with those things. We have a woman teaching the teen girls. And um, it's my opinion, when boys begin to hit puberty, it's time to be taught by a man. Um, If you've ever been instructing in an academy, which I have now had the privilege to experience watching the Brocks and Danny do this, Uh, you'll find when these men, these young men hit puberty, they start to become very rebellious. Maybe you've raised kids. Uh, Anyway, I'm just saying, I think at that point it's wise to transition to a man teacher. Uh, Some of you will be thinking this is Christianity 101. Why are you addressing this? Believe it or not, I have dealt with this every single year that I've been in this church. Somebody has come who is very dominant trying to take over the church who is a woman. And I've had to confront the issue every time and every time they've eventually left. It's contrary to the Bible. 
it's contrary to the Bible to have women in leadership roles in the church. Now, that took longer than I wanted to take, but I'm glad we got that out of the way. Amen. We don't have to visit it again. Um, let's get back to our series. So when it comes to how our church is structured, it comes down to whether or not we are going to be a people of God's word. As is contained in our King James Bible. In our church's structure, what we do is we show how seriously we're going to take God at His Word. We could cave to the pressures of the day, we could cave to the cultural norms. Man, my, my filter is kicking in. There's something that I can't decide if the Holy Spirit wants me to say. You pray for me, but uh, we, we have these things that we, we could get into, and, and yet we, when we follow the Word of God, listen, it's going to make us look odd in this world. I know that. Uh, and I don't intend to be ugly towards anybody, but I, I believe it is our desire here to willingly accept and practice what God's Word says. If we steer away from the Bible in one area, when are we going to stop steering away from the Bible? Now, God has a very definite way in which He desires for a church to be structured. It's not based upon secular models of the business world, but it is to be based upon God's Word. Amen. By the way, the same goes for your family and everything else. Join me in Titus now, chapter 1. Let's begin to consider what it is God's Word has to say on the matter of church structure, church leadership. And let me just say briefly... Just because a church has good structure does not equate good leadership. Amen. Military has good structure. But how many of you military guys have had bad leaders? So we are not neglecting the Holy Spirit in any of this tonight. I don't want you to get that impression that if we, so long as we have good structure, we're on the right path. No, no, no. It takes spirit-filled people. Now, Titus chapter 1, let's read verses 5 through 9. For this cause, Paul's writing to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality. Thanks, Lord, for putting that one in there. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So Paul says to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Titus has been charged to put in order some things that are, are needing. Uh, to set in order means exactly what it says. There were things in Crete that needed to be straightened out. They needed to be ironed out. There were some things that weren't quite where they needed to be. What needed to be straightened out? Well, we see here it was the things that are wanting, meaning there were areas that were lacking. There were areas that were absent. And what we see right away here is that God intends for a church to be structured. Amen. That's His plan. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou mayest set in order the things that are wanting. God says, I want there to be structure. And so that's why Titus is there. He's putting things in order. There, these are not areas uh, that are... We're not to leave areas out of line. We're, we're not to have 
okay, well, we've got this over here right, but we're just going to kind of wink at this qualification, and we're going to allow this person to serve over here. There's a structure. There's a way that God intends it to be. And we can't just look at certain things and say, well, we're going to make an exception here. No, no, no. We've got to stay with the Word of God. And so there's not to be areas that are absent either and that are void of leadership. Now, we understand there may be seasons when this happens. There may be a time when a pastor ups and leaves. There may be a time when somebody dies. There may be a time when all kind of things go crazy, and now all of a sudden the church is without a pastor. There may be a time for that where hopefully it's a very short time, amen, that there's this lacking of leadership. But that's not to be the norm. There's supposed to be structure in place. And we see that one of the areas that was wanting was that there was a need to ordain elders, What is an elder? Is it just an old guy? (laughs) What is an elder biblically? Well, I've listened to a lot of preaching in my life. Yeah, and I still do every week. I love listening to preaching. And uh, it was kind of weird when I was younger. I would actually drive around and just listen to preaching. I'd rather listen to preaching than music. And I would just listen. And through the years, I have heard all kinds of opinions on what it means to be an elder. And I'm sure if we went around the room here tonight, we would get some differences of opinion. So what is an elder? It becomes clear when we just allow the Word of God to say what it says. Not add our opinions or church traditions or defining what the Bible, uh, redefining what the Bible makes clear already. Paul says in verse 5 that Titus was to ordain elders. And then in verse 7, notice that without shifting gears, without changing direction in any way whatsoever, he then gives the qualification for a what? A bishop. You see that? And so we see right away that an elder and a bishop are the exact same thing. And so we find that um, we can use those terms interchangeably. So what does this mean? Now we have to know what a bishop is. Amen. Is that just a piece of of chessboard? You know, is that a piece of... The Greek word for bishop means an overseer. In fact, this word for bishop is translated as overseer in Acts 20.28. In Acts 20.17, Paul had called the elders of the church of Ephesus together while he was on the Isle of Miletus. And then we read what Paul says to the elders of the Ephesian church. It says in Acts 20.28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseer. Same Greek word, for bishop, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Therefore, we can understand that an elder is a bishop, and a bishop is an overseer, and we learn that all three of these are used to describe the same office. So it's not a complicated thing, we just make it complicated. Where do pastors come into this? It's funny, because pastor is only used once in the New Testament. And yet, that's what we call, in our stripe, that's who we call, we call him the pastor. And I just find that interesting, but um, why have we gone to that term? We don't use the term bishop. We don't use the term elder. Uh, By the way, I kind of got ahead here. We learned in Ephesians 4.11 that Christ has gifted the church with pastors. That's the one place where it's used in the New Testament. And a pastor means a shepherd. So tying that back to Acts 20.28, it says, Elders are to have oversight over... The flock. A flock indicates sheep. And sheep need to be shepherded or they need to be pastored. Therefore, all these terms, elder, bishop, pastor, overseer, they all are talking about the same thing. So why are we stuck with the term pastor? 
I think it could be, I don't know, but I think it could be other religions have hijacked the other terms. The Catholic Church wrongfully uses the term bishop. Uh, We believe in autonomous local churches. I'll get to that here at the very end of this message. We believe in, in local churches that are not governed by others, while the Catholic Church uses the office of a bishop as one who is over a jurisdiction of churches. They use the term archbishop over a region of Catholic churches. But we're only to be governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Mormon church wrongfully uses the biblical term elder. They will have people fresh out of high school that come to your door and introduce themselves as elder so-and-so. They no way meet the qualification for a biblical elder. They are definitely still a novice, and when elder so-and-so comes to your house, you may notice the zit cream hanging out of their pocket. So should we allow these religions to take over these biblical terms? I would say no. However, I would also add to that, we live in a day when we're trying to make a distinction. And if you say, boy, you got to come hear my bishop. Um, We're not Catholic. And somebody may either think Catholic, they may think charismatic. Well, you need to come hear our elder. Immediately, somebody's going to pick on my, my youth. Or they may think of Mormonism. And so I think that may be the reason why we've, we've latched onto the term pastor. But I think pastor is probably more endearing as well because it talks about shepherding and, and watching over a flock. Um, so I believe maybe we use pastor to easily, more easily separate us from these false religious terms. Um, now you may be wondering from what I said about kind of picking on the Mormon elders, um, is it wrong to have younger men in the pastorate in our churches? I recognize about two or three generations ago, we had many young men entering the pastorate. Some even were teenagers. I believe Pastor Williams was at his first pastorate. Was that incorrect? I would venture to say that men in those days became men much earlier than they do today. Men like Pastor Williams were out in the cotton fields laboring at young ages, and they were forced to grow up faster. I know my dad started working full-time outside of the house at the age of 11. But in our day, when those who enter the ministry at a young age, they're often those who have just graduated high school, they go off to seminary, all the while they're playing Xbox on their off time, and they're placed in a pastorate without ever even being tested in life. And in some cases, they've never even held a job. And we're going to give them a pastorate? Here's something to consider. In the Old Testament, the service of the ministry and the service of the burden in the tabernacle of the congregation, as it says, it began at the age of 30. And when Christ began His public ministry, how old was He? He was 30. And I think we find an interesting correlation there, and I think that's a good starting point in my opinion. Typically, by the age of 30, in our day, a man has had time to be tested in life. And as Numbers 4.47 says, the service of the ministry is hard work. It's called the service of the burden in the tabernacle of the congregation. It's, It's hard work to do it. By the age of 30, a man has typically started a family and has had time to mature and grow in their faith. Now, there's no age limit given in our New Testament. 
there is nothing that says you cannot enter the pastorate until such and such of age. I believe young men today can and should serve in the ministry. But we also must be very careful how soon they take over the heavy lifting of the ministry. When do we entrust that to them? Has there been time to view somebody in light of the biblical qualifications that I just read tonight? I started preaching at the age of 21. I would have told you that I was ready to pastor in my mid-20s. <laughs> I can tell you now that I'm still not ready and I'm 43. But God had to take me through some things, amen? I didn't become pastor here until I was 38. So I don't think young age is a disqualifier in of itself, but a person's maturity is. Are they really ready to assume the role of a pastorate? Not are they perfect, but do they demonstrate the ability and maturity? And I believe this is what we find in the meaning of the term elder. I was going somewhere with all this. An elder speaks of a man's maturity in the faith. A bishop speaks of the responsibility of overseeing a church. A pastor speaks of shepherding of the flock of God. Therefore, a pastor needs to be one who has walked with God enough to be mature in the Word of God. Amen. A pastor needs to have enough experience to be able to oversee the church's affairs and direction. And a pastor needs to have a heart to care for the sheep. Amen. It's been said that a pastor needs to have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. The mind of a scholar as an elder in knowing the Bible, the heart of a child as a pastor loving the sheep, and the hide of a rhinoceros as an overseer because in overseeing people it can get contentious really quick. I've gotten my head bit off even today. So that brings me to our structure. The issue is whether or not should we be pastor-led or like some other structures that are out there, maybe deacon-led, maybe congregation-led. How does God intend for this? Now that we kind of understand the role, how are we to be structured? Paul told Titus to ordain elders. Understand this statement in of itself, it eliminates the idea that a church is to be led by the deacons or the congregation. Amen. Why ordain elders? And since an elder is a bishop, and since a bishop is an overseer, then there must be those who are responsible for overseeing. Therefore, someone must be the leader. Someone must be able to have the oversight. And this has been charged to the pastors. Now, our stripe of churches often come under fire because we are pastor-led churches. It is frowned upon by many because we have this idea that there is one primary leader in the church when it comes to direction and vision and all kind of things. Um, a misnomer is that in a pastor-led church, the pastor makes all the decisions. Well, that's not true. I do not make all the decisions. Um, we just bought land. I didn't make that decision. Now, I cast a vision. I waited for the church to get behind it, and when the time was right, we talked about it, and y'all voted on it. I'm not the one making the decisions. Um, so that's a, that's a misnomer that's out there. And, and if you're into this kind of thing, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, but... Um, a pastor-led church is not an autocracy. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, we're not 
a situation where there's one person that has all the say and everybody else better just get in line. There's no one here with absolute power to decide everything for everyone. Now, there are some churches like that, and it's insane. I know some pastors that they believe it's their job to tell you what color car you need to buy. I could care less what you get. I really could care less. But there's people like that. Um, and, And so that's not what we're about. Because those situations can become a cult very quick when left unchecked. Now, why was Titus charged with this task when there was a congregation already established? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't the congregation just handle this themselves? Well, I believe in answering that question, we have to give some space to the fact that this is the first century and the church never existed in history before. And they really didn't know what they were doing. Churches needed help. They'd never picked a pastor before. So is it okay then for those from outside? Oh, by the way, they didn't have the New Testament qualifications. Amen. And so they needed somebody to come in and say, this is who you need, the kind of person you need to have. And so is it okay then for those from outside of a church to have a say in choosing another church's leadership? Well, we do see this when a church births a new church. If we were to start a new church in Hot Springs, that's my heart. If we were ever to be able to do that, we would have a say in how that church began and who became their pastor. But after that church is established, it's really not up to us. It's up to that congregation. Amen. Um, and so they need to be able to choose their own pastor. But I find this very unique because when you think about the structure of a church and, and how we select pastors and all the rest, we don't find this in the business world. Um, when I was fast food, you know, growing up, nobody came to me and said, who do you think our next owner-operator ought to be? Now, unless you're a high-profile athlete, you don't get to pick your boss. Amen. Apparently, if you're LeBron James, you can, but uh, we can't do that in the business world. And yet in the church, it's, it's interesting to me because here we, we have this situation where we say, okay, we're going to vote this man as our pastor. You have the say in who's pastor, but then God expects you to, in turn, right away, give that authority back. Isn't that strange? I think it's very strange. Well, the question comes up, how many pastors should a church have? I've really chewed on this one because I look at some churches I respect and they have assistant to the pastor. I look at other churches I respect, and they have pastor, 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 pastor. I already mentioned how Paul called for the elders of the church of Ephesus. He called for the elders, plural, of Ephesus. And in writing to the Philippian church, Paul addresses the bishops. James mentions calling the elders of the church to pray over the sick. Peter addresses the elders which are among you in 1 Peter 5.1. Clearly then, it must be permissible to have more than one pastor. Obviously, the size of the congregation, I think, plays into that. Amen. That would be the biggest driver, I would imagine. Now, I've seen churches of different stripes have all kind of pastoral terms. Pastor of the sound room. What? This is our nursery pastor. Get out of here. This is our worship pastor. That's just craziness. Biblically, it makes far more sense that additional pastors are used to assist the pastor in the oversight of the flock. I mentioned at our annual State of the Church address, I believe our church is just about to that place where it would be nice. I'm not going to say it's necessary. It would be nice uh, to add another church staff member uh, to assist me. At some point, it becomes more than one man can handle. These churches in the first, man, they were exploding. And what happened in Ephesus was just a miracle. Uh, This revival broke out, and they had elders. They had several pastors. And so we're close to that point. In God's time, he'll bring it all to pass. 
I can continue to preach and to uh, teach all the services. That's my primary function, by the way, that and prayer. But it becomes too much to make all the visits, make all the contacts, to organize all the ministries, make sure everything's functioning, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot I could get into of it. I'm not going to. Um, now, I rely heavily on our deacons. They do a great job. They really do. And I don't know that this church has a proper appreciation for our deacons, and that's my fault because I haven't been putting that out there enough. But our deacons do a wonderful job. They have, they have full-time jobs. They have families. They have responsibilities in life. They're husbands. They're fathers. And yet they make time to serve in this church in a very unique way. And it really helps me to fulfill all the demands of the ministry that we have here uh, with our flock. But even then, I believe the Bible to teach that there must be one pastor who is over everything. I say, boy, you're just on a power trip. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. A senior pastor, if you will. A senior pastor. Why do I say this, though? Where do we get this idea from? The Bible. Because that's what ought to be our determining factor. Well, in the Revelation, Jesus had John pen seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. I would first point out there that Jesus did not address a leader who had oversight over the seven churches. You catching that? He addressed seven individual local churches. He didn't go to some archbishop over the region of Asia and say, I have somewhat against thee. But he went to one person in those churches. These were clearly local, independent churches. And what you'll find in the beginning address to each of those seven churches is that each letter is addressed to the angel of the church. The angel that is being addressed is not some heaven, heavenly being. Study it out, you'll see an angel can mean a messenger, and in this case what it means is a pastor. And he's addressing the angel of the church. If it was some heavenly being that was over the church, why even ordain elders? Anyway, you've got to study that for yourself. I'm not getting into that tonight. But um, it doesn't say the angels plural when you read those seven letters. But to the angel singular. What Jesus is saying to these churches, He's not saying to the congregation. He's saying those things to one person. This is important when we think about the structure. Unto the angel of the church write. And then he gives what he has to say. He is not addressing the congregation. He's not addressing the deacons. He's not addressing a group of pastors. He's addressing one lead pastor. He's holding this one pastor responsible for how those churches operated. And as Jesus addresses these churches individually, He uses singular terms like thy, thee, reasons why our King James is superior. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Man, I can't tell you how humbling that is. It's not somewhat somewhat against y'all. Or all y'all if you're from the south. To the angel of the church of Pergamos, Jesus said, I have a few things against thee. There's one person Jesus addresses. How would you like that responsibility? And listen, I'm going to stand and give an account for this church one day while under my leadership. 
Pray for me. God's not coming to you to say, how come y'all didn't reach more? You know what, Brooks? I got a problem with thee. Well, let me, let me bring this quickly to an end. Let me bring this back around to our study on the pastor in church. Having established what an elder, a bishop, an overseer, and a pastor are, how do you play a role in my responsibility as your pastor? Well, I am an elder in that I feed you the Word of God. Therefore, I need you to come to church. Come to where the table is spread. Come and dine, the Master calleth. Come to our gatherings ready to hear what God has for you. Uh, So many times we just come to church. Did we even pray that morning or that night before? I mean... Are we seeking for God to feed us? Whether you like the man or not, I mean, I know that's debatable. Are you coming ready to eat? It's not just for me, but it's for you too. It's the milk and the meat of the word that we grow thereby. This is why God ordains elders. I'm a bishop in that I am the overseer. Therefore, I need you to allow me to have the oversight and to lead this church as God is leading me. Now, we'll say more about this as we go through our series, but I need you not to fight against the leadership that God has put in place. Now, understand, I I know there's times when, yes, you got to put your foot down and say, okay, that's out of bounds. I'm not talking about those moments. Please understand my heart. Um, But hey, we're going to remodel the back of the sanctuary. Blah, 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 blah. This is how we're going to... Okay, that sounds great. Just get behind. Don't be cantankerous for the sake of being cantankerous. Well, you know, I just don't like that sheetrock you used. Why didn't you keep a drop ceiling? You really going to make that an issue? I'm talking to somebody. I'm not saying blindly follow me. I'm not saying you don't have a say or valid opinions. But I am saying, get behind your pastor. Let's fly together, honk, honk. (laughs) Brother Lining, where did you go? There he is. He sent me an audio of geese honking there. But I got to give the award to Lisa. She gave the best. That goose went insane karate on that woman. Amen. (laughs) You got to see what she sent me. And um, I said, boy, that looks like some church member sometimes. Amen. (laughs) Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't buck against everything. There's people like that. And if you've ever pastored, you know who I'm talking about. There's it's always got a problem with something I've preached, something I've taught. Uh, that's not what the Bible is saying. Always cantankerous about something. Always got their quills out. Always trying to grind an axe. Always trying to prove a point. Blah, 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 on and on and on. Opinions are fine. Opinions are welcomed. But realize that I'm the one who gives the account. Finally, I'm a pastor in that I'm called to shepherd you. Therefore, I need you to allow me to shepherd the flock. You need to allow me to help guide you into a closer walk with God. Man, have I just been beat up on that. I've actually had people in this church look at me and tell me, you're of no value here. And Now listen, I'm not saying that for pity. I'm just saying these are some of the things that are said. 
um, you can't help anybody. You say, well, I mean, you're right in a sense, right? I mean, we know God is the one that has to do the changing. But did God gift the church with pastors or not? And so we have to ask ourselves, is there something that needs to be said? It may be uncomfortable at times what needs to be said. But as a shepherd, it's for your good. Amen. Sometimes a shepherd has to let the sheep know, don't go there, don't do that. Unfortunately, I have learned that people are generally okay having a pastor until their pastor tries to pastor them. Who do you think you are? Who are you to tell me? I think I'm a pretty nice guy, really. I, I don't think I've ever been ugly about anything in trying to help. Pastor gives counsel which goes against what people want to hear. Well, he just doesn't understand what it's like. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. But is what is being said biblical? Now, here's why I want to just park it here for a second. That bad attitude of, he just doesn't understand my position, or whatever it is, when counsel is offered. And listen, I don't go sticking my nose where it doesn't belong. I don't think I've ever gone out of my way to say, uh, you know what, Brother DeGarmo, you got a problem, and this is what it is. Um, and if there's anybody that needs that, it's Brother DeGarmo. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, he's awesome, but... A bad attitude can quickly lead to seeking out others who you can vent on. Are you with me now on what the point I'm trying to make? And what happens when, when somebody gets offended and they say, well, he just doesn't understand. They go seek out somebody in the church and they begin to vent and they begin to uh, let these things off their chest to somebody else. And now all of a sudden you're starting to see division mount. There's a schism that's developing. The division is beginning to set in. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. I'll say more on this as we go in this series, especially when we get to Hebrews chapter 13. Now, all of these areas that I've mentioned tonight, they require that you and I have a special relationship and bond. And you need to be able to admit that it's God's plan to have leaders in the church and that it's God's structure to have one primary leader over the entire church. He is an under-shepherd with Christ being the great shepherd. Christ is still the head. And of course, all of this depends on me walking with God. But it also requires you walking with God. If you're going to see the right structure. I would say give yourself to it and you will be blessed. And I'm not saying this as a brag. I, I believe this is mainly because this is how I was raised. You towed the line or else. And thank God that translated to the rest of my life. And as I was in the military, I had no problem with leadership most of the time. Um, And then when I was in churches, I never had a problem with the pastor, ever. 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 And and I would let the pastor know, what do you want me to do? What can I do to help? What do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? And then they would lovingly help me. There's only one time in my life that it's ever gone to a vote. But even then, I drove straight to the guy's house the next day, and we had a great conversation. I let him know why I did what I did. I've never had anything against pastors. Not in the long run. I mean, obviously, there was a divisive issue in that case. But I can't stand in a church where they're going to go away from the King James Bible and bring in modern music and some things that I won't get into. I, have to, I can't stand for that. I have to stand for righteousness. 
But even then, I love the guy. Still do. And, and so I understand that it takes a lot of trust. Man, and that's hard. That, that's hard to gain. It's even harder to gain after you lost it. Um, I know many of you have been hurt by pastors. It's amazing some of you are even in church today. And I understand that. And I know I'm asking a lot when I say, are you behind your pastor? Are you willing to listen and consider when I say something, even if it goes against what you want to hear? It's, it, and it's not because I have all the answers, but you've got to understand that as a pastor, God gives discernment. And there are things that we find very clearly in the Bible, and when we lay those things out, don't get upset. Will you allow me to feed you, to oversee this church, and to shepherd you? Let's pray.